Hi, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. Well, today sure is an exciting day. By now, many of you know that we're publishing a book, The Art of Business Wars, which is based on stories and lessons from this podcast. And, well, the day is finally here. You can now order a copy of The Art of Business Wars wherever books are sold. And so in honor of the book, we're doing something a little different in this episode. Today, we're joined by a friend of Business Wars, Rufus Griscom. He's got his own podcast, as I'm sure you've heard. He's the host of The Next Big Idea. Every week, they ask the authors of the most game-changing new books to do a deep dive into their biggest ideas. The podcast is actually an extension of The Next Big Idea Club, which is a digital book club that's curated by Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. Every season, they handpick groundbreaking books, and I am hugely honored that this season they've decided to feature the art of business wars. Hey there, Rufus. Hello, David. Today, Rufus is sitting in the interviewer's chair, dear listener, and we're going to be chatting about what it was like to put this book together and some of the key takeaways. Rufus, I'm going to hand you the keys here. Fantastic. The interviewer's chair. Very comfortable. Uh, Well, first of all, David, congratulations on the selection of The Art of Business Wars as a nominee for the next big idea, spring season. These books are selected from all of of the new books coming out, of which there are tens of thousands. So this is no small accomplishment. This is a huge honor uh, for me and for for, actually for us. Uh, This is a book that is the result of a huge amount of teamwork on the backside, as I'm sure a lot of longtime Business Wars listeners will recognize, because we're pulling a lot of stories from the Business Wars podcast that they've they may be somewhat familiar with, and we're also bringing in a lot of other stories that we haven't had an opportunity yet, at least, to launch into on the podcast. But uh, on behalf of everybody uh, behind the scenes that was involved in this, um, thank you for for doing this for us. It's huge. Our pleasure. Now, tell us about the premise of the book, David. I understand it's based on Sun Tzu's The Art of War. How did you adapt it for Business Wars? It just so happened that Hernan Lopez, who was the founder of Wondery, uh, had come up with this idea, we need to do a book, and what if we call it uh, The Art of Business Wars? At the same time, I had had the same exact thought, and the book took off from there. But fundamentally, the idea is not just to repeat what's happening with the Business Wars podcast, it's to try to bring out something else, and that is, what are the lessons that you can draw from it? You know, we obviously focus on the human aspect of these stories because they're such compelling narratives. But we know, based on the feedback that we've been getting from listeners, that people are listening and thinking about their own experiences and and how they can learn from what's happening. It's fun to listen to because of the drama and the immersive sort of techniques that we're using in the podcast. But what are the lessons? And that's something that we were hoping to extract with the art of business wars. And obviously, we're using the conceit of the art of war as a, as a way to sort of structure those lessons. So, so you start each chapter with a, with a quote from the art of war, and then that leads into to case studies. Can you share an example of how these lessons set up a case study? Sure. For instance, let's take entering the battlefield. Uh, Sun Tzu says, the general who wins a battle makes many calculations in his mind before that battle is fought. 
Well, now that sounds like sort of obvious wisdom. A lot of people would say, what's new about that? But when you look at it through the lens of people who have actually been successful in business, it starts to take on added dimension. And one of the first personalities we focus on is Henry Ford. People think about Henry Ford and uh, mass production. But to get his business off the ground at the very beginning, something that he had to do was partner with others to get the capital that he needed to, to get his business going. The problem is that if you're partnering with other people, they may not see the way forward the way you do. So how do you persuade those people that you're working with that this is something you need to do? Henry Ford did something that in its own way was as important as the development of, of the assembly line. He figured that, that what he would have to do to get the sort of independence that he would ultimately need before he could make that Model T was he had to come up with something in the supply chain that would allow him to basically take over the business. And so at that time, uh, Ford was getting its supplies for making its engines from a third party. He came up with an engine manufacturing company. And so by doing that, what he did was he was able to basically build up a secondary business from the ground up, which ended up having the capital to buy out the under-investors in Ford, in, in the bigger business, and start to build Ford into what we know today. Now, you see these sorts of things happen throughout the book, but that's an example of the sort of lesson. But this brings me back to something else that I think is kind of um, a, a secret of business wars. And that is, I can tell you that, and it sounds dry, right? But in the podcast, you're immersed into the personalities and the individuals mm -hmm, mm -hmm. behind it, and you see their sort of personality ticks. And that's yeah. something we didn't want to leave behind in this book. So as we're telling that story, we're trying to bring out aspects of those individuals as people, as human beings, in ways that I think makes it not just fun to read, but also really intimately relatable. You know, you can see yourself in a lot of these situations. There's so many great stories of these business rivalries in the book. I know it's hard to pick favorites, David, uh, but I have to think the Gibson versus Fender chapter is on your short list. Uh, I understand you're a guitar guy, right? I think a Gibson man, is that right? Here's a funny thing, and if, if we have any guitar players listening, I know that you can um, sympathize. I love Gibson. I love the vibe. I love the sound. But a Fender somehow feels better in my hands, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just finally admitting that. But the Gibson, <laughs> but the Gibson versus Fender story, yeah. I think, is is one of my favorites. And you're quite right. And in fact, the lesson there is, it isn't always the first company to harness a technology that succeeds. It's the one that strikes at the right moment. You know, the moment when it can leverage the opportunity to the fullest, and not a second later. Some listeners may know the name Les Paul. Les Paul yeah. happens to be the, the name of a model of a Gibson guitar. Mm -hmm. And it's been around since the 1950s. But the original iteration of the Les Paul came from the man, Les Paul himself. He was a huge pop star at the time, one of the mm -hmm. best-known uh, guitar players. The issue was rock and roll was coming on the scene, pop music was getting louder, and the guitar was getting drowned out. And Les Paul had this innovative idea. He was going to take, basically, since he was an engineer at heart, he was going to take what amounted to a kind of log. In fact, he called his guitar the log. And he put strings across it, and he shows this thing to the folks at Gibson. He's a popular man. Gibson wants to see Les Paul, wants to know what he has to say. And he says, guys, I want you to build this guitar. And they're like, what? You want us to build basically a, a railroad tie with strings on it? You know, and they, he sort of gets <laughs> yeah. laughed out of the room. Yeah. But the concept is there. 
Meanwhile, there's a guy named Leo Fender. He's building amplifiers and that sort of thing. He's not even a guitar player, but he mm-hmm. knows his way around electronics. And as a result of that, he rubs shoulders with a lot of musicians in the course of his business. Well, he knows who Les Paul is. He's heard about the log. And he's thinking, you know, this is kind of straightforward and Les is right. If I basically took uh, a, a bandsaw to a piece of wood, I could cut up a guitar, bolt it all together, and I could accomplish what Les Paul wants without having to run through Gibson or anyone else. I can just do it myself in my, in my factory in Fullerton. And that's effectively what he did. And he came up with an, really what amounts to the first what we would consider to be modern electric guitar. These days we call it the Telecaster. It used to be called the Broadcaster. Gibson sees Fender sales skyrocketing. Here's a company that hasn't even been in the guitar business, and now everyone from Buddy Holly forward wants to play a Fender instrument. How did that happen when Gibson had a 50-year-plus lead on them? Well, it was because Fender wasn't wasn't close-minded about what a guitar could be and what the future of the guitar would be. Fender was listening to the customer, even though they weren't even his customers yet. And so he struck really at the right moment, and he leveraged that opportunity to the fullest. Gibson had to catch up. So they, with their, you know, heads hung low, went back to Les Paul and said, Les, what about this? And Les was gracious enough to sign on, and that became a partnership that lasted for many years. The great happy ending of this story, if there's a happy ending, and that's one of the reasons I love this story so much, is that Gibson and Fender today continue to be dominant And neither of them really lost. And that competition that began back in the 50s has continued to improve instruments to this very day. So it's a terrific success story, but it's packed with more lessons than just what I've shared here. Well, and and that's such an interesting piece of it, isn't it? That you see the way that these business rivals riff off each other, almost like musicians, you know, you watch, you know, Fender and then Gibson and then Fender making these improvements, getting rid of the reverb, making it beautiful. Uh, it, it's a duet of sorts that, that, that occurs in these robberies. But of course, they don't always have happy endings. A lot of people think they know the story of Apple, but a lot of people don't remember the Newton pad. You remember the, do, you, do you remember the Newton pad that Apple do came I out ever? with? Yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm old enough to remember the Newton, which was really the first um, tablet of sorts, right? But it was, it was ahead of its day, wasn't it? Certainly was. And this was at a time when, you may recall, Steve Jobs had been pushed out of Apple you know, because of a boardroom confrontation. Mm-hmm. So this was in the period when Jobs was sort of in the wilderness. Apple came up with a wide range of devices. They had an Apple camera once upon a time. You know, this is, we're talking about the 1990s here. A lot of people loved the idea of the Newton because it sort of pointed its way to the obvious future, that there would be a kind of device where you could keep track of everything, but it kind of overpromised. Anyway, mm-hmm. Steve Jobs gets brought back into Apple in the late 90s, and he sees all of these products all across a range of, of consumer electronics that Apple is now sort of dabbling in. And what he does before anything else, before the iPad, long before the iPhone, he knocks away everything that Apple's been working on during those years when he was in exile. He winnows it down to four things, and they're all basically Macs. And what he does is he reestablishes Apple as a computer company. And this gets to another lesson that I think comes out, and that is you can't do a whole lot of stuff well, especially if you're chasing after number one. At the time, it was all about Apple versus 
PC, right? I mean, that was at least in the computer space. If Apple wanted to win that and it needed to, if it really wanted to grow in a sustainable way, it had to get rid of all the stuff that was taking away from its focus. And so that was one of the controversial things that Steve Jobs did. But what that allowed him to do four or five years later is come out with this device that didn't seem so revolutionary at the time. There had been other MP3 players. But that little iPod started something that, well, shoot, we're still experiencing it today in this podcast. It's funny. I was talking with someone the other day. I said, where do you think they they got the, the word podcast from? And they didn't know. You know, it's that iPod. You know, I, I have one of the original iPod with the disc that physically moved in circles at home. And it was really just a, a, an incredibly elegant little device. But none of us knew at the time that it would really set the stage for the iPhone and, and all that would come. I bet you could um, get 500 bucks for that on eBay. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I know. I, well, I, have to, I have to keep my wife from throwing it out. You know, she wants it. <laughs> but, um, but no, it, it is what's extraordinary is we often lose a lot of the complexity of these stories, right? I mean, we just, we tell the Apple story as if it was inevitable and we forget the stumbles. And, and I think this is part of what's so informative about the art of business wars. Uh, some of the companies that appear in the book have been profiled in the Business Wars podcast, but a lot of them are new. For fans of the show who are already familiar with some of these stories, what's different about the book? Well, it's it's certainly what you're going to hear. For instance, we've done um, uh, Apple on our program, but we haven't really explored, uh, for instance, Steve Jobs in the iPhone in particular, because that's a battle unto itself with research in motion. Uh, there's another. We've talked about Ford versus Chevrolet, but there's an exceptionally interesting story about Mary Barra, who led the rebirth of General Motors. And when she ends up at General Motors, uh, she, it's not enough for her to say, yeah, we want to be competitive. We want to be competitive, say, with the Japanese and with other imports. She wanted to win and not this is something else that comes out in the book that I think what you see is someone who's motivated by this need to demonstrate that she's not second tier when it comes to being a business manager. And she's constantly up against obstacles, always being uh, someone else is getting picked for the for the great gig. And she's got to figure out a way to navigate her own career as she moves up the ladder. Well, today she's head of General Motors, and she's taken that philosophy of not being satisfied with just being competitive. She wants to win. And that's what comes out, that attitude and that mindset comes out in the retelling of her story. So that's an example. But these are the sorts of stories that we're really trying to to, to dig into here, Biocon in India, fast fashion. Um, these are stories that I'm sure will eventually appear on the podcast, but the Art of Business Wars gives us an opportunity to sort of give you, give longtime listeners a sneak preview of some of the great stories to come. Wow, getting, getting ahead of the podcast with the slow-moving book industry. Believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great twist. Well, you also, I noticed, have a chapter on resilience, which isn't part of the Art of War, What's it like releasing this book at what I hope will be the tail end of a pandemic? Uh, were, were there any lessons for businesses that have had a tough time over the last year? Something that stands out when we're thinking about the pandemic is how events that seemingly are outside of our control can affect how we move forward, whether we can move forward. And, you know, you're sort of in that survival mode. Those who tend to win business wars, if that's the frame of reference that we're thinking about, tend not to just focus on survival. 
they're also focused on what does it mean to eventually thrive. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think about, for instance, the panic of 1907, which led to this enormous drop in advertising prices. And there was this guy named Wrigley. Perhaps you've heard that name before. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, 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 and something that he did was he took advantage of that drop in advertising prices, which basically all anyone wanted to talk about was how this was decimating industries. But he was able to see how this could lead to greater bang for his buck. And he started out by blanketing New York City with ads for his gum. Didn't take off at first. But through that experiment in advertising, it really started the company out to become a a national brand that it continues to be today. You see companies like Nintendo, a company constantly reinventing itself to respond to setbacks like the collapse in the home console market in the early 80s. A lot of us forget about that since gaming now is an industry unto itself. But back when Nintendo was getting started, they saw these events sort of out of their control. How can we control people's taste? Young people feel disappointed, let down by what's out there. Well, they constantly had to reinvent themselves. And as we talk about in, in some degree of detail in the book and certainly in the podcast, we, we see how you have to think about that next step as you're thinking about surviving. So it's not enough just to survive. You have to already be thinking about your strategy to, uh, for thriving. And, and uh, that's something that comes out quite prominently, especially as we've been thinking about the pandemic and hunkering down. If you haven't started changing your, your mindset yet, it's time. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, a question for so many of us. You know, is is where is the opportunity in the crisis? And I, I, I actually was fascinated to learn. We had a conversation recently with, with Scott Galloway, who said that the Chinese word for crisis is famously thought to be a combination of this, the Chinese symbol for danger and the symbol for opportunity. But it it turns out the correct translation of the second symbol is a time of change, and we're in the midst of a major one right now and you know i'm sure in years to come there'll be many business wars stories that will that will tell those stories well i like to think that we have been gradually culturally moving towards more collaboration obviously we still have intense rivalries right intense competition between businesses we always will but as the world becomes a little more complex and we're uh, so many businesses are operating in a non-zero-sum digital realm where you have to collaborate with your competitors. There's something that we mention in the book. It's um, We actually mentioned another book. It's it's a Blue Ocean Strategy. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but uh, mm. Chan mm-hmm. Kim and Renee uh, Mauborn, they, they make a point that you don't need to succeed by just engaging in competition. Now, I know what I'm saying here doesn't sa- sounds like anathema to the concept of the art of business wars, <laughs> yeah. but what they're saying is, look, Yeah, you can see the world as red oceans full of sharks or cutthroat markets, but capitalism, which is in a sense what we're talking about here, doesn't have to be seen through the dynamic of that sort of evolutionary dynamic where it's it's constantly dog-eat-dog. What Kim and Mauburn are saying is rather than think so much directly about competition, think about competition through the lens of creativity. Create. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't compete first, right? Create. Look for, I think uh, Mazumdar has said this, uh, look for blue oceans, areas mm-hmm. where you can think differently and stake out an entirely new position. 
And what I love about this idea is that it's not necessarily inconsistent with the concept mm-hmm. of competition because eventually, once you stake out that that field, it could quickly become a battlefield to the extent that you're successful, you know. But one of the one of the consistent things that you're seeing, especially in this new, more digitized business environment, is that there are more uh, more of these sort of wide open blue oceans mm-hmm. than we yep. perhaps ever saw before. We're seeing it constantly, and and I'm excited about in the future being able to share more of those stories as we read about more and more spectacular successes in fields that we never even imagined. I mean, think about it, man. 10, 15 years ago, how many of us imagined that we would get on our phone and, you know, get an Uber ride, right? I mean, that's transformed travel. It's transformed the way we get around. Uh, It's transformed business in in a lot of respects. And now people talk about being the Uber of fill in the blank. So there's so much more to be explored, so much ground, and you bet that resonates. And uh, I think it. Uh, well, I can't wait for. Uh, I can't wait for all the stories that people are going to be uh, telling and talking about. I hope we get to share a lot of those on Business Wars, and who knows in future books. Absolutely. Well, you make a great point. The more opportunity there is, the less people need to focus just on pure competition. They can. You know, focus on all the all the additional opportunity that exists. This is what I tell my kids when they're at each other's necks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I love it, Rufus. Thanks so much for doing this with us. And before we go, I want our listeners to hear a little bit more about the next big idea. What other books are you covering this season? Do you know yet? And and where would our listeners go to find out more? Well, David, you just you lobbed me a softball. I appreciate it. Um, this is my favorite season yet. I mentioned earlier we spoke with with Scott Galloway recently uh, about how business has been transformed by the coronavirus. We go deep on that. We just had Adam Grant on the show talking about his new book, Think Again, which is really, I think, about how openness and humility can be a kind of superpower. Um, I also got some useful marital advice out of that episode. Um, And coming up soon, we have two Stanford professors, Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis, talking about how humor can be a secret weapon in business and in life. Hysterical conversation, you won't be surprised to hear. Last but not least, I'll tell you that we have the great Walter Isaacson coming up soon, talking about what we can learn from his extraordinary biography subjects. That you, you may have read some of his biographies about Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, Einstein, Steve Jobs, and now Jennifer Doudna, who won a Nobel Prize for innovating new CRISPR biotech, which has helped now with speedy invention of uh, coronavirus vaccines, which hopefully we're all, we're all getting. So if you want to join us, just look up The Next Big Idea wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you want to join them because this is a, it's a terrific podcast. Next Big Idea, part of the Next Big Idea Club. Uh, Rufus, it's been really great to have you on, on Business Wars. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. Rufus Griscom is the host of The Next Big Idea. You can find it each week on your podcast platform of choice. And listeners, to find out more about The Art of Business Wars, make sure to visit Wondery.com forward slash The Art of Business Wars or pick up a copy wherever books are sold.